This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 3rd, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Should the United States participate in regimes to compel developing countries to reduce their emissions? Or rather, should we focus on the kinds of economic development to help those countries better deal with the problems of pollution, including climate change? Richard Toll is a professor of economics at the University of Sussex. We spoke last week. So many of the issues related to climate change seem to deal with just getting an accurate measure of what kind of emissions are being put out there. So where does the data get muddy when it comes to trying to uh, figure out how much various countries are emitting? The problem with CO2 emissions is that we don't measure them or we don't monitor them. Uh, These are all measures that are imputed basically from energy use. So if your energy records are not accurate, then your emission records won't be accurate either. Um, Energy use is measured in different ways. We, of course, know how much energy is dug out of the ground, or at least in most countries we know, (laughs) not in all countries we know. And there's, of course, many countries that are big on energy they are actually fairly secretive. There's a lot of smuggling of energy, uh, for instance. Uh, so, so, so that is one source of data. And then there are these surveys that essentially the National Statistical Office send out to all the companies and ask them, so how much energy did you use? And those are not necessarily accurate. Uh, third source of information uh, is the tax system. We typically pay VAT or some sort of excise uh, on our energy use. And that means that you have a third source of data that tells you how much energy was used, what sort of energy was used, and then you can impute the emissions. If we do so in countries like the US, we typically find that the various estimates of energy use differ by 2 or 3% from each other, and we're reasonably sure. Um, In other countries with statistical offices that are not independent of the government, Argentina, Greece, China, uh, you can find much larger discrepancies uh, in in emission estimates. So 2 to 3 percent, that frankly, that doesn't sound like a very large discrepancy for the United States, but uh, what kind of discrepancies might we see in a country like China? In China, um, because there's so much politicking, politicking going on about growth and about energy use, you can see emission estimates differ. 10, 20, 30 percent. Well, that seems pretty significant. How does that change climate modeling? Um, <laughs> that, that, I mean, because China is so big, right, that actually does have a substantial effect on emissions. Um, and we saw that play out earlier this year in the media, where according to some emissions, uh, some estimates of Chinese emissions, we actually global emissions were falling. Uh, but if you believed other estimates uh, of Chinese emissions, global emissions were rising. Uh, so, it, yeah, that has a big effect. So, it, essentially, the, the margin of error for Chinese emissions is essentially the difference between total global emissions rising and falling? At the moment, yes. Well, so, what, is that, what does that mean for trying to craft policy? Um, well, the policy is, is, of course, about the measures that you take. Uh, so, for U.S. policy, what Chinese emissions do doesn't matter, right? Um, for Chinese policy, it does matter a whole lot. Um, and at, at the moment, the Chinese seem to be moving to, to a system of tradable permits, where essentially you create a legal right to emit CO2. Um, but if you cannot measure that legal right, 
If you cannot measure how much CO2 is emitted, then if one company sells its emission permits to another company, what did it really sell? And what if they made a mistake or perhaps they lied about their emissions? What will you then do as a, as a judiciary? Because there's no independent verification possible of these things. So this is actually very tricky. Um, if you look at CO2, uh, SO2, sulfur uh, or NOx emissions in the US, where there's also the legal right to trade the permit to emit these things, uh, there's actually very careful monitoring and all sorts of checks uh, on how, 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 how much uh, different companies emit and how much they trade with each other. It actually requires a very sophisticated monitoring and a very well-developed legal system. And China is simply not there. So on, on either score, not, neither on the emissions monitoring nor on the legal system. You talked a little bit about how economists were sadly correct about uh, this two-degree target. So what does that tell us here 20 years after the fact that this two-degree target was adopted at a time when uh, we didn't know as much as we do now? Uh, it tells us uh, something about the status of economists in all these negotiations, right? They're, <laughs> fair, they're, simply, they're simply not believed. Um, tempting now to say, I told you so, right? Uh, but, but well, that, economists that, have such few opportunities to do that, right? <laughs> uh, economists are actually a lot better than people give them credit for. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, that, that's, that's, that's uh, fair enough. Um, well, it seems that sense is finally beginning to prevail in the international negotiations, that the idea that you can sort of this UN negotiated centrally imposed target for the whole world is being abandoned. Also, the idea that you could have sort of a budget for the entire century is also being gradually abandoned. And people say, well, Somebody else will be in power in five years' time, so who am I to promise uh, what they are going to do, right? Um, when you say budget, you mean spending to prevent this uh, No, I, 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 sorry, I refer to the carbon budget, uh, that long-term goals essentially imply that in 2015 we're going to dictate what policy will be uh, in 2055 which is a bit hubristic to suggest that we have that power, right? Because future presidents, future uh, congresses will be able to reverse whatever we do. Um, so it, it's becoming gradually more realistic, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, it's Maybe it was necessary that it took us 20 years to get to uh, this point. Uh, first, you need to try everything that is stupid before you're going to do sensible things, apparently. That, that is how uh, international diplomacy works, and we've seen that in other areas as well. So it is not entirely surprising. It is a bit unfortunate that it's taken so long. What is the problem with arriving at a, some sort of global agreement on future emissions? problem is very simple. Um, if a country commits to reducing its emissions, that country will bear the costs of doing so. The benefits of this action will be spread over all countries in the world, and any country will reap only a small fraction of the total benefits of their action, and that means that it's simply in your self-interest to do very little. So it's, it's good to get everybody on board or nobody should be on board. Nobody, the, nobody the, will be incentivized the, to be on board. The best solution is every, if everybody else reduces their emissions and you do nothing. That's the, the, the best 
results for everybody. So what are your expectations coming out of this uh, conference in Paris? Uh, there will probably be a lot of, uh, there will be a treaty, right? I mean, there's so much diplomatic energy invested in this that they have to come out with something that is called the Paris Treaty, right? Um, I don't think it will do a whole lot. It will disappoint a lot of environmentalists um, because essentially they will walk away saying we're not going to meet the two degrees target. They're probably not going to say that out loud, but it probably will probably be clear for everybody to see. Um, and I mean, what developing countries will come out disappointed as well because the big money that has been promised to them in the name of climate will not be forthcoming. Um, so what we're left with, I think, in the middle of December is a lot of nice words on paper, but not much action to reduce uh, emissions. The debate within uh, people who are skeptical of climate change policy as a means to achieve uh, some stated goal and the people who are very strongly in favor of some strict limits um, seems to be a fight between can we effectively impose these limits and how quickly can we get developing countries to develop? That is to say, to be wealthy enough to deal with uh, the effects of climate change. You said that China can't measure its its uh, emissions very well. Developing countries probably suffer from the same sort of problems. So where do you fit along that spectrum? Um, I've long argued in favor of a modest climate policy, uh, modest emission reduction, and I still hold that position. Um, there are, of course, people who are uh, opposed to any form of climate policy. Um, I would disagree with them. I would agree with them when they say that a lot of climate policy that we've seen so far has actually very little to do with climate policy and has a lot to do with other factors. And what we've seen is a lot of rent creation that is creating distortions in the market that make a few people rich, uh, but not necessarily reduce emissions. We've seen a lot of subsidies being given out to political allies and people who might vote for you. Um, I've we've seen a lot of centralization of power through climate policy, definitely in the European Union, um, where climate policy is something that is done by majority vote, has taken over industrial policy, which is where every member state has a veto, and a lot of industrial policy has been outfarmed uh, to climate policy, and that essentially has substantially increased the powers of Brussels over uh, the member states. Um, and I understand that people are opposed to that, and definitely these sort of constitutional changes done through the back door is something that I think we should be very careful uh, about. Um, there's also a lot of people who are disappointed by the level of ambition of climate policy. Um, I would say to those people that perhaps they should focus more on making the policies that we have more effective so that they reduce emissions rather than enrich people. Um, or certain people, um, but yeah, uh, some some people want to go faster, but I, I just don't think that's that's realistic that we can go much faster in emission reduction than we have in the past. What about making poor countries wealthier countries? How effective might that be at uh, at at least putting the world in a better position to deal with whatever might be the consequences of climate change or mitigating it altogether? A lot of the most severe impacts of climate change will fall on poorer countries, and that is because they are poor. Um, 
So anything that would make them develop faster would make them less vulnerable to climate change. Yes, it will also probably drive up emissions of CO2, uh, but I think that the benefits of being richer and therefore better able to withstand climate change actually far outweigh uh, the additional climate change. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that, I think that, that that would be a very good thing. Um, 50 years of experience with development aid has suggested that we're not very good <laughs> at doing this. We're getting better, but we're still not very good. Uh, but the sort of thing that you see USAID do, that you see the World Bank do, that you see UK DFITs, uh, UK's DFIT uh, do, and that is stop the financing of cheap electricity, I think is just wrong-headed. Um, we know that the lack of affordable and reliable energy in poor countries is one of the main obstacles to economic growth, not just in terms of productivity, but also in terms of health. If you don't have cooling, you can't have vaccines, for instance. If you don't have light in the evening, you can't expect your kids to do their homework, right, because they can't see. Um, so the lack of electricity and other forms of modern energy in poorer countries is actually one of the major obstacles to economic growth. And by saying we keep the official development aid budget constant, but instead of giving these people cheap coal-based electricity at, say, four cents per kilowatt hour, instead we're going to say, no, 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 you have to have solar and that's going to cost you 12 cents uh, per kilowatt hour. That can't be good for them. And if you ask developing country economists or just ordinary people there, what do they want? They want grid-based, coal-based electricity. Richard Toll is a professor of economics at the University of Sussex. We spoke during the Cato Institute's conference on climate change. You can watch the full event at cato.org.